You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Melissa. Welcome, everybody. I am John Ford in for Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. Well, the reopening trade is fading fast as airlines, casinos, and hotels see big drops. We're going to look at what it could be telling us about the next move for the market. Plus, Apple continues to rally up 40% in just three months. So is this name unstoppable or should investors be cautious of a stock that continues to hit all-time highs? And one retailer is down 58% this year, but Bank of America says it's time to buy. The name and the analyst behind that bold call is ahead, but uh, we begin with today's markets. Major indices kind of holding on by their fingernails. Bob Pisani, you've got that. And John, uh, NASDAQ is at a new high. That's the good news. But a rather depressingly familiar scenario uh, happening now day after day, and that is it's all about tech and semiconductors and not much else. That's a little bit of a concern if you're concerned about market breadth. Let's take a look at the sectors and what's going on here. Again, today, of course, technology outperforming, particularly mega cap and semiconductors. That's essentially the market. Dow Jones Industrial Averages, see, sort of moving sideways. We've been largely in a range, trading range uh, in the last week or so. The S&P 500 has been hugging around a little over 3,100 for a while now. But take a look at some of the sectors here. So tech, industrials. Materials banks. Notice techs outperforming day after day after day. Industrials, materials and banks, technical stocks are generally underperforming day after day. And that's been an issue for the markets for a long time now. Uh, Mega caps again today. You got Apple doing well. You got Microsoft, Google, Amazon doing well. Facebook, a rare down day. But those big five stocks have been powering the S&P 500 forward uh, for several weeks now. Uh, Elsewhere, it's been a story for a while now. The tech stocks in July keep holding up, not, not just Apple and Microsoft, but your Salesforce, all of your uh, 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 software companies are doing well, and your semiconductor companies like NVIDIA. Uh, and there you see the big move up. But elsewhere, if you look at the banks, they just keep sinking day after day. You've got all sorts of problems there with loan growth and, of course, and potential loan delinquencies out there. But there's some of the regional banks for this is just this month, just a few trading days that we're dealing with, 7 8% declines that you're seeing. Same thing with industrials, although there's a little bit of a split here because what's happened is you're getting companies like the package companies like FedEx, which had a good earnings report and UPS doing well, along with some of those logistics companies because they're delivering packages for consumers. Business deliveries are not doing well. And elsewhere, you see American uh, in the airlines not doing well, deep cyclicals like Textron uh, and aerospace like Lockheed. So the bottom line is this. You can't have a market with just five stocks and uh, a dozen other Uh, semiconductor stocks and software stocks pushing the market up day after day. At some point, you've got to get some of those laggards starting to show some life. Don't have that today, though. Back to you. Yeah, who knows when that's going to be. Bob Pisani, thank you. And now uh, taking a look at the reopening trade as more states pause or roll back their plans. Casinos have not fared very well with Wynn, MGM and Las Vegas Sands all down around 20 or 30 percent over the past month. Meanwhile, airlines and home builders are facing similar headwinds with United and American Airlines down big, while KB Homes and Toll Brothers are struggling to find their footing. So if the reopening trade stalls out, will those funds just end up back in the large cap high growth names? For more, I am joined by Jim McDonald, chief investment strategist at Northern Trust Asset Management and Scott Wren senior global market strategist at Wells Fargo Investment Institute. Um, good afternoon, guys. Good afternoon, John. So, so Jim, hey, John. Uh, Jim w- w- when we look at the, the rise in coronavirus cases 
and the way we, we've seen the impact in some of these travel and hospitality stocks. Uh, how do you factor that in as an investor from here? Do you, do you keep money there? Do you put more there? Do you move it somewhere else? What's going to happen? It has increased our concern about the outlook for stocks in general because consumers are starting to, in the wake of the rise of coronavirus cases. So you've seen it in a drop-off in airline bookings. You've seen it in a drop-off in restaurant bookings. And so I think you want to be careful with stocks that are betting on a robust reopening here because the evidence is indicating that not only are individuals being more cautious, but companies are also being more cautious at bringing people back into the office. But we got kind of a catch-22, don't we, Scott? I mean, uh, on the one hand, rising cases might stunt the economy in the short short term. On the other hand, the vice president this morning saying in-person classes have to resume this fall. I've got to think part of that might be because America can't completely go back to work if kids don't completely go back to school. But there's a concern about this rise in cases. What, from a market perspective, do you want to see happen? Well, John, of course, you know, we're trying to focus on hospitalizations here. And, you know, I think that's really the number to watch because, you know, if you look at the seven-day moving average, uh, we're well over 600,000 tests a day. So there's a lot of testing going on. It seems to be younger people uh, that are that are getting these more recent, uh, these more recent infections. Uh, but this is something that, you know, we want to watch for sure. Now, as we look out through year-end, um, we're not expecting a lot of, we've got a little bias to the upside, 3250 is our year-end target. Um, year-end 2021, though, however, we're looking for the S&P 500 to touch 3500. So really, for us, our clients, what we've been telling them is you want to stay in tech, you want to stay in consumer discretionary, you want to stay in communication services. Uh, those are going to benefit from the environment we see, but we want them looking out beyond what we think is going to be a range trading with a little upward bias over the course of the next uh, six months. So we think the market's going up. Uh, there's going to be some uncertainty here on the virus front between now and then. Uh, we think these any big down days or big down weeks are opportunities to step in. So we want to make sure our clients have a plan. And then when they get the opportunity, we want them to pull the trigger and execute that. But Scott, plan. you're telling them also to rotate out of real estate, right, in, into healthcare, and also get out of treasuries. Um, what, what should people be getting out of beyond that? Well, I tell you, we've been underweight small caps and small caps, you know, typically early in a cycle, um, they do better. We've had that position on for a long, long time. It's worked well, but clearly small caps have performed uh, better here. Uh, we've, we're getting, you know, interested in, in, in high yield. What we don't want our clients doing, especially after these big bounces here, you know, you mentioned real estate. Uh, we don't like energy. We don't like industrials, which is usually a later cycle type of uh uh, t- type of uh, strategy to follow. So, you know, for us, we think things are going to improve. Uh, we don't like materials either. Um, they've had good bounces off the lows, but you have to think about some of these sectors that we don't like materials, right. industrials, uh, energy. They need inflation. They need tight capacity. They need robust global growth. We don't have any of that going on, and I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. And Jim, you say the market's overestimating the growth rebound, um, reducing the margin of safety for investors. What's the right response to that? I mean, if you think the market is overestimating that, what do you do? 
Well, we've been paring back our equity exposure in the last two months, and the areas that we've taken it from have included things like real estate. We've pared back our U.S. overweight to a neutral weighting. We're underweight emerging market equities. Some of the areas that we like include high-yield bonds, where we think a yield-starved environment will continue to favor that asset class. At the sector level, we do like some technology stocks, primarily in the communications area. And we also like healthcare, where we think earnings will be more durable and the valuations are more attractive than some of the areas that arguably have gotten overdone. All right. Well, uh, we'll see how that shakes out. But at least, hey, it's a plan. It's a strategy. Jim McDonald and Scott Wren, thank you. Now, one stock that has continued to outperform amid all the market volatility is Apple. That stock continues to hit all-time highs. It's up 70% since the March lows. Those records have some on Wall Street a bit wary, but not enough to tell investors to stay away. So joining us now is Jerry Ong, uh, analyst at Deutsche Bank, who raised his price target to $400 a share today. Uh, Jerry, good afternoon. Good afternoon. So... Tell me, a lot of people are concerned about the launch of the new iPhone this fall, thinking there might be some delays. My take, having watched Apple for a long time, they tend to launch things on time, maybe not in the volumes that some people might have hoped, but I don't even know what demand is going to look like if people are going to be going out to stores this fall anyway. How does it look to you? Yeah, sure. So uh, it's possible that the product could be delayed. I think that's definitely uh, well understood by the investor community in the last three cycles, there have been twice that the product has been delayed a month to two months, the iPhone 10, the iPhone 10R. Um, so, so it's not unprecedented that the product could be delayed. And uh, one of the risks that we did highlight in our note is that uh, people may be less willing to go to stores to buy the phone. They may have smaller pockets due to unemployment um, and the present situation given, uh, given lower, you know, lower spending. And so um, it's definitely a, a risk that we, we're worried about as it you know, gets out into November and December. Yeah, but tell me now about the price target hikes, though, because correct me if I'm wrong here, but on June 9th, you were at 350. On the 22nd, you were at 380. Now you're at 400. It, it looks like you're chasing it, and it makes me wonder, uh, when is too high? You're at 400 now. I mean, is, is 450 at the end of the month? What's, what's going on? Yeah, it's a great question. And so, so I think what's interesting about, about the present sell side, um, sell side bias for price targets is that most of the outperform and buy ratings are actually have a price target that's actually below where Apple is right now. And despite raising to $400, there's only uh, one or two analysts who have a higher price target than I do at, at present. I think 400 makes sense. Um, and here's why. You know, the stock is at my, my price target is based on 25 times $16 in, in 2021 earnings. Um, at this point in time, I think that's fair when you compare it to peers. I consider peers largely fa uh, Fang and Microsoft. And, you know, where, where the multiple compares to peers, I think, is fair at this point in time. Uh, but, but if it pushes beyond, much beyond where it presently trades, I think that's um, increasingly going to cause investors to become anxious. I wonder when it causes you to become anxious. I mean, the, the comparisons to peers is what I wonder about. Because, yeah, when they're all on the way up, it, the comparison to peers says that, well, this one should, should, should go higher. But then eventually, if they've gotten too high, it and all the peers end up falling. So... Uh, where do you peg it? When do you kind of fundamentally say, all right, the peers might be continuing uh, to go higher. This stock might be better than that one, but it's all too crazy. I'm, I've topped out. 
Yeah. But, um, so ultimately, Apple Apple is attractive for many reasons. I think increasingly investors are beginning to understand that the core customer base is very entrenched, um, especially as you add on music and TV Plus, um, Apple Arcade. Um, the list kind of goes on. Um, an iPhone user presently is very likely in four, five, seven, ten years to buy um, more iPhones going forward. That sounds to me like it's. I'm basically describing what is more known as an annuity stream. I think that's kind of increasingly being valued correctly. At some point, it, you know, I do think that the valuation will, could expand to a point where uh, it outstrips that the value of that annuity stream in terms of profits. And I think that's the point where we need to be more cautious. I don't believe we've reached that point yet. Yeah, I mean, I got to tell you, when we look at back to school, I don't know if parents are going to be buying kids as many clothes uh, because who knows if they're even going to be going to school five days a week across the country. But technology, I don't know anybody who's saying, well, maybe you don't need that new iPad uh, this year if you're using it for school because, my goodness, the, (laughs) the stress on the parents in the home, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd agree with that. I mean, I think work from home and learn from home scenarios have really brought to light the value of tablets and PCs, especially, um, and, and even iPhones to an extent as well. And and these are products that are really at the core, at the heart of what Apple brings to the market. And so I definitely agree with you. From that standpoint, there seem to be tailwinds ahead. Yeah, we'll see what happens to the holiday season, though, with that launch timing. Jerry Ong, thank you. Thanks. And coming up, a market-moving call on retail. Kohl's shares jumping as Bank of America says it is time to buy. Why? Well, we're going to ask the analyst behind the call next. Plus, why Disney plans to go ahead with its reopening plans despite rising coronavirus cases in Florida. And we'll tell you why major universities like Harvard are suing the government. We'll be right back. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back. The nation's largest public school system might not fully reopen this fall, with New York City Mayor de Blasio announcing today that classroom attendance could be limited to a max of three days a week per student. These kinds of decisions are having many ripple effects, including on back-to-school shopping prospects. And for more, let's bring in Courtney Reagan. Courtney. Hi there, John. So many districts still aren't sure exactly what school will look like with COVID-19 still spreading. Will it be online, in person, some combination like the New York City mayor is proposing? We still don't know, which makes it a little surprising that Deloitte forecasts back to school spending for K through 12 will be on par with last year at $529 on average per family for a total of $28.1 billion. Now, there's some nuances in the spending. So technology spending expected to grow 28% over last year, while spending on clothing and traditional school supplies could fall 17% and 18% respectively. Mass merchants still will get the highest percentage of spend, so that's like a Walmart or a Target. Not surprisingly, though, online and contactless pickup options are are gaining ground for parents when you compare the the survey results from last year. 66% though, John, of parents are anxious about back to school in general. 76% point to concerns about health. 43% are worried that the abrupt end to last year's school season simply left their children unprepared for the fall start. And 38% 
are highly concerned about finances. We know there are many job losses that have happened already. There certainly could be more. Back over to you. Yeah, Courtney, that that shift to spending on technology certainly makes a lot of sense to me. But I, I wonder about the impact on certain kinds of retailers, the ones um, like your Coles, like your Ross, like your Burlington, where the whole idea is go in and touch a bunch of stuff and rifle through a pile of things that other people have been touching to find that deal. I mean, is that going to work in this environment? Are, are analysts talking about that? Yeah, John, I think it's going to be very difficult. And I think retailers themselves are a little worried about even having crowds at stores. I mean, my gosh, that's usually what you want. But now you're a little afraid of that because of what's still happening with the virus spread. And look, if kids aren't going to school, do they really need all those new outfits? Well, to some degree, if they grow out of it, right? Not all back-to-school spending is discretionary, which I think is key when we're talking about back-to-school, say, versus maybe holiday spending. But I think you bring up some key points. Those apparel players, those mall blades, those enclosed stores could be trouble this fall. Yeah, got to shop with tweezers uh, this time. Courtney, thank you. Thanks, John. And the pandemic causing major damage to almost every area of the retail industry. Just today, Brooks Brothers filing for bankruptcy and Asena, the parent company of Ann Taylor, expected to file sometime this week. Meanwhile, Levi's announcing layoffs after reporting a sales drop of 62 percent. Despite the retail worry, though, our next guest is making a bold call, saying now is the time to buy Kohl's, which is down 58 percent this year. Joining me now is Lorraine Hutchinson, Senior Retail Analyst at Bank of America Securities. Uh, Good afternoon, Lorraine. Good afternoon, John. Well, I love a bold call, so let's get into this one. I mean, um, I understand the idea that it's sort of maybe the best of, of the pack, but what if they're all bad? Well, look, the the stocks have been all bad. Year to date, they're all down about 60%. And if I were to highlight two key themes that we see coming out of this pandemic, it's number one, a shift away from the mall, and number two, a shift toward e-commerce. And we think Kohl's will stand out positively in both of those themes, with 95% of its stores off mall, so in strip centers, much easier to get in and out of, I think much more comfortable for shoppers to, to go. And then number two, e-commerce, their penetration last year was 25%, and that spiked to 45% in the first quarter when many of their stores were closed. Mm -hmm. So I think Kohl's is really set to be a key winner post-COVID, and the stock just has not been differentiated by investors versus a Macy's or a Nordstrom. Is is this the time for maybe payoff from that experiment that they did uh, with returns for Amazon, things like that. Have they become associated with e-commerce in that way? And has that taught them something that you think sets them apart now? They certainly have. You know, they, as, as you know, they accept Amazon returns in their stores. It's been a great traffic driver. I think there's still a lot of room to go on their ability to convert that customer into a Kohl's customer. And that's what they'll really be focused on. I think it's interesting that when they reopened their stores post the pandemic, they moved that Amazon returns desk somewhere different in the store besides customer service to create some distance. And we think also better adjacencies for that millennial mom walking into a Kohl's maybe for the first time to bring her Amazon product back. She'll have some other options of things that she might want to pick up at Kohl's. 
Now, what about this issue that I'm raising about stores where you have to touch a lot of things? Now, I know that surfaces are not seen as a major vector of transmission for virus spread. But in general, people are just concerned about this type of thing. Is that something that a retailer like Kohl's can address in a way that appears to be better than others, whether it's organization, whether it's cleaning? Is there any strategy that you've seen here in retail that makes you more or less heartened when you look at these players? Look, they've all been taking a lot of precautions. Uh, they're limiting the number of people in the stores. They've um, stepped up the cleaning in a big way. Some have fitting rooms closed. They'll keep the product aside for 24 hours after somebody has tried it on or returned it. So there are plenty of precautions in place. I think some of the most shocking data points that we heard coming out of first quarter earnings was actually how well the brick and mortar stores have been opening once they've opened. Um, you know, we see lines outside the store. People are, are really interested in I going back. I want to sneak back. one more in for you. And how do you buy a retail stock if you don't know how Black Friday is going to work? Do you know? Uh, you know, nobody knows. But I think, um, you know, when you look at the customer's wallet, right now it's pretty healthy. And one of the big themes for years before COVID was the shift toward spending on experiences, vacations, nice meals, wine tastings, those are all canceled. So if you have a little bit of discretionary money, maybe it's a nice year to buy some more Christmas presents, uh, buy yourself some clothes. I think there there will be a big shift back to some spending on material goods, well, let's, just given the lack of other options. Let's say there is, but government stimulus has had a bit to do with that. And I just wonder about the logistics of lining up at stores, how many people can get in. I mean, m- maybe that makes the, your e-commerce case. Hey, if I can't line up at the store, then I'm going to buy online and I'm going to buy from Kohl's because it's better than the others. But I don't know. What do you say? Yeah, look, I think uh, you know Black Friday is becoming less and less important for the industry as the deals have stretched much longer online. And I think they'll work to do that again this year really start offering the discounts online much earlier so they avoid crowds at the stores. Um, Mm. And I think most people will shift their spending more toward e-commerce this holiday because they want to avoid those crowds. And I think Kohl's is poised to win there. Well, you won't see me in line. That's for sure. (laughs) Thank you. Lorraine Hutchinson with Bank of America Securities. Coming up, Nikola shares soaring as J.P. Morgan goes out overweight on the stock. We're going to tell you why they're going along for the ride, despite calling it a story stock. And a reminder, you can always watch us or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The exchange is back in two. Welcome back to The Exchange. Stocks are mixed at this hour with the Dow turning negative after being up 219 points. The S&P about flat. The Nasdaq still positive. Here are some of the movers this hour. Twitter shares jumping after posting a job listing saying it was building a subscription platform under the code name Griffin. Twitter has since edited that posting, and it no longer contains that information. Sources telling R. Julia Borston Twitter has no imminent announcements on anything subscription-oriented. AMC also moving higher. The theater chain reportedly nearing a restructuring deal that would help it avoid a near-term bankruptcy. And Biogen higher after submitting an application to the FDA for its Alzheimer's treatment. The company says it would be first, the first approved treatment to address the course of the disease. And now to Sue Herrera 
for a CNBC News update. Sue? Hello, John. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. There appears to be quite a battle brewing in Washington over how to safely reopen schools this fall. The CDC says it will issue additional guidelines next week after the president slammed the agency's current guidance as impractical and expensive. Meanwhile, NBC News says the White House is working on its own set of less restrictive guidelines as President Trump insists that schools must be open in the fall. Meanwhile, New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo is criticizing the federal government for downplaying the virus's resurgence in 36 states. The federal government still insists on uh, perpetuating myths. And the federal government says, well, the cases are going up because we are testing more. That makes no sense whatsoever. Hospitalizations are going up. That is the indicator. And firefighters are working to free some people who were trapped inside wreckage after a huge crane collapsed onto a construction site and surrounding homes in East London. And that rescue effort is ongoing. You are up to date. That's the news update at this hour. John, I'll send it back to you. All right. Thank you, Sue. And coming up on the exchange, more people getting their kicks on Route 66. RV and boat makers expecting a record 2020 despite the COVID concerns, or maybe because of them. We're going to look at the names that are benefiting. Plus, colleges are fighting back against a new rule on foreign students that could potentially cost the U.S. economy $45 billion. We've got the details. Well, it's about that time. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here with their takes are Robert Frank, Julia Borston, and Bill Griffith. First up, Facebook shares turning around despite an audit of its policies, finding that the platform created, quote, significant setbacks for civil rights, unquote. This comes as civil rights leaders called yesterday's meeting with the company's management disappointing. Facebook is also dealing with what could be the biggest advertiser boycott in its history. Julia, you've been following this story. Facebook is less than 2% off of its all-time highs. The biggest boycott in its history wouldn't be that big. Should investors be taking this seriously, however we might feel about it? Well, it's interesting, John, because you had the results of the civil rights boycott come out this morning and very much echo the frustration and the criticism that's been levied on Facebook by the nearly 1,000 brands that are boycotting and by the organizers of that boycott. But what I think is meaningful about today's news and the fact that Facebook is positive is the fact that Facebook had this audit They opened up their doors for this audit. They commissioned this audit. And I think Facebook is more likely to take the recommendations from the auditors, also civil rights leaders, than they are from the boycotters. Facebook has made it very clear they don't want to look like they're responding to advertiser pressure, but it's hard to deny the recommendations made over a two-year audit of this company. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it, Bill? I mean, uh, this is something that Facebook practically asked for, and it comes back with a with a pretty mediocre grade at best, though I guess you could say it's not like the other social networks got a grade, so we don't know what to compare it to. I'm not sure I understand Mark Zuckerberg's uh, motivations right now. I mean, okay, he doesn't want to be pushed around by his advertisers, but why isn't he trying to, you know, go to the forefront and do something about the 
social issues that we face these days in terms of misinformation, the election coming up, racial justice and, and so forth. You know, it's like he's digging in uh, amidst all the pressure when let's remember when they after they came public, there was tremendous pressure on this company to develop a mobile strategy that they didn't have. And guess what? They came up with a mobile strategy. But this seems like he's going the other direction at this point. So I'm not sure I understand his motivation. And one plug next hour on Power Lunch, we're going to have a former Facebook executive and I'm going to ask him, you know what? You know, he had a front row seat. He had uh, got to watch Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, operate. I'm going to ask him what he thinks the motivations are right now. A power lunch plug and rapid fire. Is Absolutely. that allowed? All right. All right. All right. Uh, Robert, let, let's get to Bill, our I have real to say, quick. I think this is totally different, totally different than okay. mobile strategy. This is nah. they are under attack from all sides. <laughs> I think this is very different. This is not just about advertising. Julia, this it's is about, about money. Sort of their, it's their always about inside. money. It's always about the bottom line. They're being hit by advertisers. That's a bottom line issue. Uh, of course, it's the same thing. It's just a different, you know, uh, different names, different stories, but it's still about the money. Speaking of different names and bottom lines, let's talk about Harvard and MIT suing the Trump administration over a new immigration rule that bars international students from living here while taking online only courses. Uh, Robert, tell us about this brewing battle and the enormous financial stakes for uh, for colleges that have really come to rely on foreign students. Yeah, John, this is also about morality and money. So the morality side of it is that MIT and Harvard both suing the Trump administration for basically saying, unless you are taking some physical course, you cannot retain your student visa in the United States. So those who are in the United States who are taking all online classes, like those who attend Harvard, will either be deported or they'll have to transfer schools. And so Harvard's president, Larry Backhouse, saying today that this is reckless, it is illegal, and that he will fight for the international students. But really what's on the line here is the $45 billion a year that international students spend in the U.S. And at some universities, they account for more than 20 percent of the total tuition. This has been the financial lifeline to so many schools, more important than ever right now, as states are cutting their budgets to colleges and as more families are cutting back. So this is about the morality of this and the students, but it's also about the money. As some of you guys know, my daughter is a grad student at that Ivy League that Robert just mentioned. Uh, so she has a number of international students that she's been attending classes with or did before they shut down uh, in March. And she made, I give her credit, she made a good point, I thought, this morning at breakfast after we heard this story. Uh, that you, you know, her point was, why kick the students out of the country because they have to work remotely? Why not also then kick employees out who are working for companies in the United States who have a work visa of some kind? Why single students out necessarily when you could uh, go after all? Uh, people uh, from yeah, international. Well, people. Julia, they're, Julia, they're I, certainly trying. They're trying. Well, I know, <laughs> Julia, I, I was going to go there. there. And I want to hear they're, Julia's they're take best to get on them all this. Out. Because, I mean, everybody's working from, not everybody, but so many people, especially with college education, are, are working from home right now. Why is the Trump administration so hot on everybody going to class? I mean, it's like hall monitors all of a sudden. I don't know. Get in class physically. I mean, is, is that where we are? Is that a good idea? I don't know. 
I, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't seem like it's necessarily a good idea for a number of reasons. I've seen all those reports about fraternities and sororities being sort of a hotbed of, of the virus being passed around. But I also think there's this question, John, of just thinking about the ripple effects of the, all of those college towns that are going to be losing so much revenue at the local pizzerias and the, and the coffee shops because they exist in, in large part for those students. And if you're going to be penalizing them and may, because you're sending all those students back home, it's just various layers uh, of of economic, you know, economic implications from that. True. International students. Time order to pizza short too. the marijuana stocks, guys. <laughs> All <laughs> kinds of reasons to do that, I suppose. All right. Moving on. Then this. Disney says it is still moving forward with reopening of parks in California and Florida, despite coronavirus case spikes in both states. Disneyland California will go through with its phase reopening with the downtown Disney district in Anaheim tomorrow. While in Florida, Walt Disney World will reopen the Magic and Animal Kingdoms on Saturday, despite more than 7,000 new cases just yesterday. Now, Julia, this is cases, not hospitalizations. Disney has an enormous amount of control over how things flow, how things go in their, in their parks. Is that what gives them, you think, confidence to move forward the way they are? Well, look, I think it's really worth pointing out, John, that there are two various two very different situations. California is moving very slowly. They're only effectively opening a part of the mall that's outside the park because the California government is really taking things more slowly here. In contrast, the Florida government is saying all, you know, full steam ahead. It's ready. You know, they're ready for the for the park to open. And so I think that's why we're seeing the actual park open in Florida, which is a much bigger deal. Many more people, people getting on rides, not just getting takeout food. So I think it'll be a really interesting test um, to see how it goes and also of consumer demand. I mean, there are going to be so many different steps that the park is taking, whether it's handing, handing out hand sanitizer and masks or taking temperatures. And we'll see if the lines are longer because people are going to have to be more spread out on rides. Right. This is a very different situation in Florida, and we'll have to see whether people want to show up. Admittedly, I'm not a Disney fanatic, so I may not be the most objective person in all of this. But, you know, for me, going to a, a, a park like that is supposed to be fun and, you know, leaving behind the troubles of the world. And, and how much fun is it going to be when you're still confronted by all of the uh, uh, onerous restrictions and procedures Compared that are to what, being though? put in place <laughs> no, in, in retail stores? Where else are you going to go? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I just don't think it's going to be that much fun. So I will be interested to see what kind of demand there will be. Uh, for not only the Florida sto uh, location, but for Disneyland as well. I mean, certainly there are going to be enough fanatics out there but, uh, that want to go back. But I just wonder how much fun it's going to be. I don't think it would be, it's at least for me. It's going to be a lot of fun, Bill. It's going to be a lot of fun. Graded on the fun curve. Right, Robert Frank? We have different definitions we're not, of we're it. Not, this is yeah, not you, fun. I mean, just, just think you'll go, you go on the spray ride like 50 times while you're there. It's going to be, they're yeah, going to spray wait, you down. I'll wait in line, just like the water I'll ride. I'll wait in line two hours <laughs> each time, too. Yeah. Well, I don't know. The lines might be short. And don't say spray. That reminds me of aerosols. We've all got to be careful. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, guys, thank you. Thank you. That was rapid fire. Next... Shares of electric truck maker Nikola are rallying on an upgrade to overweight at J.P. Morgan. The firm noting the stock is, quote, starting to look attractive for the long term after a 40 percent plunge this month. J.P.M. cutting both future partnerships and regulatory reliefs as key reasons to buy. But keep in mind, Nikola has yet to deliver a single vehicle and doesn't expect to have 
any revenue before next year. We're still in rapid fire. Bill Griffith, you love Nicola. Well, you, but I, how do you know they I, don't have I, cars yet? I didn't say I love Nicola. Okay, but you like it. I, it. You think it's fun? You said unlike last, Disney World. You said last half hour you like a bold call. This is a bold call, obviously, from okay. J.P. Morgan. <laughs> but I think it's instructive to look at the history of another company that's in the same business, essentially, to try and compare. And that, of course, would be Tesla. And I'm not talking about the mania that's no, going on not. right now. Hang on, hang on. The, the, you know, right now, Nikola is five years old. Came, uh, it, it was founded in 2015. Uh, here we are, 2020. They still haven't produced a truck yet, no revenue, but yet they went public now, and they hope to have revenue next year. Tesla, founded in 2003, its first car, the Roadster, came out in 2008 at the height of the financial crisis, a pandemic of sorts at that time. Then it went public two years later, and it already had revenue of 117 million. And by the way, it had doubled the revenue the next year. So theirs was a more logical uh, journey financially, whereas it seems like Nikola has put the cart before the horse in this case. And I'm curious, J.P. Morgan's call on this right now. A lot of hope and, and wishing at this point, I think. Julia? Yeah, look, John, look it's a, it's a story it's stock, really... but, but let's, get the story, let's get the story straight. This is a hydrogen electric company. And so oh. we talk about hydrogen vehicles. You're talking about the massive infrastructure and capital needed to build out a huge number of hydrogen fuel stations across the U.S. One of the reasons for this upgrade is that they're rolling out perhaps more in a more accelerated way in the U.K., but the amount of money you need for hydrogen vehicles versus electric, it's a totally different story. Yeah. All right. Now, really, but, Julia, this time. Bro, I, <laughs> I still don't stand you know, corrected. Yes. I think it's just important. Take a step back and look at who's buying these shares. This stock is so volatile. And if you look at the fact that this stock is popular with investors who tend to be younger on the platforms like Robinhood, it indicates that maybe people are more gambling with this stock and looking at the moves of Tesla, as Bill said, and thinking about this as more of a short-term play. This is a company that's so far pre-revenue. It's hard to make bets on what's actually going to be happening. This is really about how other people are going to be trading. And there's another big difference. Nikola doesn't have Elon Musk either. Love him or hate him, he is a visionary. Yeah, I guess, Robert, uh, the uh, Nikola founder needs to get busy on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Look, it, you know, I call him the mini Musk, and, and there are people trying to draw that parallel. I wouldn't necessarily write it off just because millennials are buying the stock, but this is a stock that has gone from ridiculous to merely unexplainable in terms of the upgrade. So it's, it's still hard to fathom. Yeah, but so is Tesla these days. So. Oh, so is Apple, some people yeah, would true. say. Yeah. I mean, goodness. <laughs> that's All right. true. <laughs> Everybody. Now, that really was rapid fire. That was great. Thank you, Robert, Frank, uh, Julia Borston, and Bill Griffith. Still ahead, as travelers shun planes, RV and boat sales, on the other hand, look poised to climb in the second half. We're going to hear from the CEO of a leading RV and marine components maker. That's next. Welcome back to The Exchange. While the pandemic has been devastating to many industries, it's been a boon for what I'll call the rural loner trade, uh, boating and RV manufacturers. With COVID cases spiking and travel restrictions in place, will that continue? Well, let's bring in Frank Holland 
for more. Frank. Hey there, John. You know, that is the question. Will it continue? Here's what we know so far. Shares of leading RV maker Thor surging more than 100 percent and Winnebago also outperforming the market over the past three months as people turn to alternatives for airline travel and hotel stays. And one of those people choosing to RV, Jason Lippert, the CEO of Lippert Components, a key supplier to RV and marine companies. He and his family choosing a cross-country trip. Lippert says RV makers are indicating to him that 2020 could potentially top the industry's record year back in 2017. Our biggest gauge is simply, you know, listening to the dealers out there that are in control of all the retail demand uh, uh, products flying off the shelf right now. Um, and, and dealers can't keep inventories. Their inventories are really low. Lippert component stock also trading higher over the past three months. 40% of its business is RV related. Another 10% or so is marine related. And the boat business is also booming. Malibu Boats, their shares also doubling. Leading boat maker Brunswick Boats also outperforming during this pandemic disruption. We've also spoken to boat sailors like Yamaha. They're reporting record sales in May and June. May alone, boat sales were up 182% year over year. Lippert says his customers in the marine business expect demand to stay high through the third quarter. Boat manufacturers, our customers are ramping back up very quickly. Um, so, um, you know, we're gearing ourselves to be able to, to ramp component supply up to, to supply all of our, our boating manufacturers that are probably going to be building at record numbers here this summer. And if you're looking for another sign of investor confidence in the recreation rally, just take a look at Camping World, the largest RV dealer in the U.S., also sells boating equipment. Its share is trading more than 250 percent higher over the past three months. John? Yeah, that's Marcus Limonis, is it not, which CNBC knows well. Uh, Frank, I, I wonder, what are the broader sort of outside factors that might have an impact on whether this recreation rally continues or stalls out? Well, you know, John, it's, it's kind of like the best of times and the worst of times for RV makers, especially right now, of course, millions of people out of work. But also when you look on the other side, the 10 year uh, fraction of what it was back in 2017 when RV makers had their record year. Gas prices just about the same. Consumer confidence. I think it really depends on where you're at right now. Those are three of the big factors that RV makers say they look at when they're t- talking about their industry and what it's going to look like going forward. Right now, again, looking at the 10 year right there, very favorable conditions to buy an RV if you have the money. All right, Frank Holland, thank you. Thank you. And up next, the CEO of a company that went from tracking fitness to tracking COVID-19 symptoms and how they are helping the PGA to keep pro golfers safe. The Exchange will be right back. The golf industry announcing today it's going to reschedule the Ryder Cup and the President's Cup for 2021 and 2022, respectively. As pro sports leagues figure out their COVID-19 playbook, the PGA Tour is turning to a sports tech and analytics startup called Whoop to monitor and detect COVID warning signs in golfers. Uh, Joining us now, I'm looking for Will Ahmed, CEO and founder of Whoop. There he is. Will, welcome. Thanks for having me. So uh, tell me, how does this work? Because, yeah, we, we know about Apple Watches and things out there, but your differentiator is having more sensors and, uh, and, and monitoring more things. How do you monitor for COVID-19 symptoms? Yeah, so we build wearable technology. You can see it here on my wrist. Lightweight sensors designed to measure everything about your body, metrics like sleep and recovery and strain. 
And more recently, and most importantly, we've been measuring a statistic called respiratory rate. And respiratory rate is really important because we've seen that an elevated respiratory rate can be a predictor of COVID-19. Respiratory rate is typically a very boring statistic. If you look at a year's worth of my data, every single day you'll see the same number of breaths per minute. That's respiratory rate. And we measure it while you're sleeping. And yet what we've seen, and we've done a lot of research on this, John, what we've seen is that when someone gets COVID-19, as early as three days before feeling symptoms, they'll have a dramatically elevated respiratory rate. And it just jumps off the screen, you know, 14, hmm. 14 every day, and that's, then boom, and 18. That's interesting. Now, does that also work? Uh, I don't know if, you've, if you know this from the data yet, for people who continue to be asymptomatic otherwise, or does that tend to just happen for people who eventually, say three days later, do show symptoms? Yeah, absolutely. So the powerful thing is this shows up for people who are asymptomatic as well. And you mentioned the PGA Tour. Nick Watney, a professional golfer on the PGA Tour, tested negative for COVID-19. Two days later, he wakes up with this dramatically elevated respiratory rate on WHOOP. So his baseline was a 14. All of a sudden, one day he wakes up with an 18. He knows something's up. He feels no symptoms. And he goes and he gets a test, a COVID-19 test, and he tests positive. And uh, if he hadn't seen that elevation in his respiratory rate, he would have been playing all weekend with the, re- you know, the best players in the world. So the PGA Tour learned of this uh, experience, learned of the story, and took decisive action to roll whoop out to every player, caddy, administrator, staff, media, you name it. Well, as we talk about opening up, there are lots of different venues that could potentially take advantage of something like this. But I wonder, what's the false negative rate effectively? I mean, how many times does somebody not have an increased respiratory rate but end up uh, coming down with COVID-19, even if they are asymptomatic? Is, Is there a way of knowing that? So we've been studying this since early March. We partnered with uh, CQU in collaboration with Cleveland Clinic. We collected uh, about 2,000 data points on this, and we've since submitted research uh, that includes 271 participants. And what we found is that the respiratory rate indicator caught 20% of cases two days before symptoms. So that's really powerful because that's going to profoundly affect prevent the spread. And it caught 80% of cases by the third day of symptoms. So that gives you a sense for, for the accuracy of this. I mean, I don't want to overstate, you know, there's, there needs to be a number of solutions in place. But what we've seen is that whoop and measuring respiratory rate in particular can be part of that solution. Uh, and then quickly, if you can, um, how broadly cost-wise could this be rolled out? Could companies adopt this to determine when it's uh, safe for people to come back to work or to try to catch uh, symptoms early? So we are working right now on a back-to-work business unit that's leveraging the WHOOP technology to help corporations go back to work. I can tell you right now we've already got about five corporations signed up for this. Hmm. It's moving quickly. Uh, And look, we want to do everything we can to help. I mean, I think at the end of the day, everyone should be fighting uh, together to beat this virus. Ah. Well, Will Ahmed, uh, very interesting. CEO and founder of WHOOP, sports technology able to detect potentially uh, early signs of COVID-19. And that does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.